welcome back to Kyle's Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the Balboam 5 Season 5 episode of Tragedy of Telepaths. This is really just a part one of part two of the, uh, basically, the big climax of the telepath situation. Um, it, it, it offers a lot of forebodingness and uh, has a lot of tone setting that I'll discuss next time that I don't think really goes anywhere. Um, there's a lot of forebodingness, and I've talked about that Byron, his name is apt, his name is very on the nose. He's supposed to be a Byronic hero, which is all about this romanticism of suffering, okay? And uh, it... It leads to this entire episode feeling like it's leading to something dark and tragic. And next time it's going to try and be dark and tragic, but ultimately end up very cheesy. And I'm not sure if that was a limitation of the budget uh, or what. Uh, we'll get there when we get there. But I think this is ultimately, especially next episode, is really where Season 5 gets its reputation. By no means bad, it's just lackluster, I think, ultimately. Um, I, I like how it, the episode begins with Lockley and ends with Lockley, ult ultimately fretting over the situation. She is stuck between a rock and a hard place. There's nothing good that can come out of this. The, the, the telepath cult has schismed. There is now two. One is a violent uh, revolution and the other one is a more peaceful protest. Uh, and it's basically open hunting season on telepaths. And how else is she going to deal with it? The, she doesn't have the manpower. She doesn't have the political pull to do anything. The only people who do are the side corps. So she calls in the side corps. Yes, it was a perfectly... Uh, reasonable decision in her eyes, but it's also the wrong decision. It can be both reasonable and wrong at the same time. It pushes the telepath further into a corner, and when an animal is, you know, stuck in a corner, it naturally fights back. It's its natural in in inclination to do such a thing because it is attempting to survive. Uh, and so it is both a pro and a con that she called Bester in. And I like how. Byron's side, they're doing delaying tactics that are actually very interesting. Um, we saw back in uh, the early days of this show, uh, especially season two, uh, that telepaths can do uh, projection of illusions. If enough of them are in the area, they can produce a very strong illusion that cause actual real-world ramifications in, in such as the, 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 the guy who wants to claw his eyes out, uh, as mentioned in Season 4, or the trick that Talia did to Bester in Season 2. And so uh, we see that the telepaths are essentially uh, using the illusion of there's a bomb behind this wall, because uh, there's enough of them there to just delay the, you know, s slow advance of uh, the security team on them. Uh, it's actually a pretty smart way to use their powers. Uh, it makes sense, and it's non-violent. Use the threat of violence to not be violent. Uh, very a Byron way to do things. Um, and when they call Lockley in, um, they're... 
the scene between Byron and Lockley is very interesting because ultimately it is simultaneously Byron going to his ultimate martyr complex of I'm saying goodbye, this is the end of us, blah, 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 you've always been fair, but also trying to acknowledge his prejudice against mundanes, against normals, and say, hey, you did good by us, or at least tried, uh, and but also going about it in a way that is almost passive-aggressive. Uh, also, like, the, the intentionally using a telepath suggestion to get the head of the station to come to you just to say goodbye um, is an interesting tactic, to say the least. It's very Byron. Uh, he, he's got a flair for the dramatic uh, the name. Byronic hero. Uh, romantic to the end. Uh, but that's ultimately the problem, is that it makes sense for Byron to do this, but it is a shot in the dark and ultimately serves no purpose. I like how uh, there's a lot of talk about how fear and paranoia are ruling over the ISA right now. The ISA is in its early days, and we have already seen episode after episode airing out of dirty laundry of a lot of the members. Cleaning up genocides, uh, actively oppressing a group, etc., etc., all these horrible things are coming to light, and so now they're, uh, the, they are afraid for their own status. And then you have the uh, the attacks on their shipping lanes by the Centauri, unbeknownst to anybody that it's the Centauri, and uh, the evidence is being planted, as proved by Sheridan later in this episode, uh, that it makes it look like it's the other members. So the fear and paranoia are on high alert right now and the problem with a culture of fear is that it needs an outlet uh it needs a way to uh to pass the buck to blame someone for this fear uh and because the telepaths are acting up right now that becomes an easy convenient target for their fear and paranoia especially because they just got blackmailed last episode by the telepaths uh, and this doesn't help when you have the other group of telepaths who decide, okay, well, the Psychor's here, let's go all ham, and let's let's beat everybody, and let, let's, let's directly take weapons from the armory and start opening fire. Uh, and he, the sad thing is, is that the peaceful... Uh, group of telepaths, Byron's group, is going to be blamed for these violent extremists' reaction. Because in any culture of fear, that you group a people together and lump your prejudices, your paranoia, and your fear onto them and say they are the problem. So a telepath is just a telepath. There is no difference between these two groups, even though there is, to a culture of fear, there is not. And uh, we see how the telepaths are essentially childish revolutionaries. Um, I'm getting a bit of a French Revolution vibe uh, off of them. The French Revolution was years and decades of, uh, of mismanagement, oppression, anger, and abuse all flooding through the common people against the royalty. And it led to some severe repercussions such as the reign of terror and 
long, blood-soaked years of nothing being accomplished and one oppressor being replaced by another. Uh, the quote-unquote revolutionaries were no better than those that they were fighting against. It was it eventually equaled out. One's voices were better heard, but the anger and the vitriol were so strong at that time frame that nothing else mattered but vengeance. And that's what I'm seeing here, is the telepaths are so quick and so childish in their attempt to get weapons and immediately open fire on the Psychor. There is no attempt for negotiation, there is no attempt to hide, it is straight up, oh my god, fire at will. Uh, and it is so, it, 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 it's, it's a reaction built out of a culture of fear and a culture of anger and um, the feeling to need to fight back an animal, you know, put in a corner. It all makes perfect sense. Uh, but that's the inherent problem is that this situation is only compounded and made worse by their actions. By trying to act in self-defense, by trying to fight the system, they have inherently driven basically the stake through their heart and declared a death sentence against themselves. Because they've now made them target number one. And they have confirmed all the prejudices and all the fears of telepaths right then, right there. Uh, it's how the cycles of violence perpetuates itself. By using fear, by using anger, and using self-justifiable actions to cause backlash. And backlash leads to more backlash. And violence perpetuates more violence over and over and over. We saw this with the Narn and the Centauri, and in many ways still are, uh, though they are taking steps to get over that, uh, as we'll see in the Londo and Shakar segment of this episode, and now we're seeing it with the telepaths. Uh, th there's a little bit of a side thing here uh, with the ISA uh, in that culture of fear and paranoia where uh, they are directly putting troops on the borders, basically readying for warfare, and the... As part of the ISA Treaty, everybody acknowledged the sovereign right of the Rangers. And so the uh, the ISA decides, okay, you, you gonna do you you're you're going to threaten us? Well we'll threaten you back. It's mutually assured destruction or mad. Uh, it, the Rangers are now being used as not only a delaying tactic, but as a device to threaten to the big stick policy, as I mentioned a couple episodes ago, to whack you on the head and say, listen up, buddy. Uh, and the problem with that is that it can work in the short term. In the long term, it does not. It leads and perpetuates a more uh, paranoid culture, a culture of fear. And the Drazi ambassador pretty much says this, is that no one's going to forgive Sheridan for this action right here. He willingly turned weapons on his own people. He did it to stop them from turning on each other, and it was done only as a threat. And who knows if he would have followed through with it, but the mere act of doing it provides a dangerous precedent. And that dangerous precedent can at some point be pushed over the line. Uh, and I like how... Garibaldi sort of sets this out that the ISA has only been around for you know a few months at this point but the 
history is told by the winners and the history is told in a way that is divided amongst uh, you know, conflicts, e either personal or political or nation-defining conflict. That's how we record history. It's because we as humans enjoy a good story, and story is conflict. Uh, uh, person A wants something, something gets in the way of him or he or she getting that thing, uh, you know, and it's the journey from person A to object of desire. Uh, that is the inherent through line of a story. It's conflict. Uh, and so, uh, as Garibaldi lays out, no one cares about the peace. We care about conflict, and we, and we enjoy watching something fall apart. It's why we can't look away from car crashes or train wrecks. Um, you know, uh, it's just an inherent part of our psychology that we enjoy these things, even while we're horrified by it at the same time. And that's why we demarcate you know, history by the conflicts, by the war. It's because it's interesting. Who cares about the, you know, X number of years of peace where very little happened? What care, What we care about is those itty-bitty moments in that peace that showed the facade of peace that it was there and they'd been slowly teared down to the point that it, you know, it ended up in, you know, all-out war. The lead up to World War One. What what do you study? You study the uh, the peace treaties and the uh, and the defense pacts because all of that leads to the mess that was World War One. We never take a look at anything else beyond the uh, the ethnic and racial strife and the defense pacts, and then it leads straight into you know history of World War One from battle to battle to battle. Uh, and that is the way we divide history, ultimately, is we love a good story. That is the problem with humans, uh, and, I guess, also the strength of humans. We are bound together by stories. Our life is a story. Uh, and that's, that, that leads to the, uh, misunderstanding of history at some points where history becomes nothing but endless bloodshed uh, not the good moments, the peaceful moments the kind of moments, the moments of humanity and generosity no, it is always the misery and the pain it's almost nihilistic in a way now the Jakar and Londo stuff I absolutely adore um, th this is uh, some fantastic work with uh, these characters. You have Londo, who knows something's up, has gone through his arc to the point that he is good friends with Jakar at this point, uh, and is fearful of his future. You have a Jakar who is very mellowed out from when he was. He's now friends with Londo. Um, he's Londo's bodyguard. He's trying to make a point to get over the trials and tribulations that his race has been put into, his, the cycles of violence that have been with the non Centauri for centuries at this point. Uh, but that anger is still under there, underneath the surface. It's still there. It will never really go away. The only way is to acknowledge it and then move on. But it still is always present. Uh, and Natoth returns. 
uh, played by Julie Caton Brown, um, uh, the original actress from season one. Uh, when uh, when the actress switched over in season two, there, there was uh, conflicts with makeup and stuff uh, that led to Julie leaving. Julie actually showed up again as a normal human, as uh, uh, as the lawyer to Sheridan in one of the Peter David written episodes, actually, uh, in season two. But there was another actress playing the Toth in uh, season two. JMS didn't like the way the actress was playing her. Uh, felt that she was uh, sort of taking that high-strung, very uh, feral attitude and mellowing out, and he didn't like that, so he just wrote her off the show. And there was occasional mentions of Ned Toth uh, uh, throughout the, uh, the the next few seasons. I think it's season three. It's actually mentioned that uh, Jakar lost contact with her on the Narn homeworld uh, just before the bombing. Uh, and so... Uh, we get her again, and it's the original actress, and it's all this nice reunion, but it also comes in this melancholy of what we do to each other when we see things as not people, but objects. Objects and property. Um, you know, I have, you know, j just, just to give you an example, I have a lamp sitting next to me here. It's just a lamp. I can replace it at any time. It doesn't mean anything to me. It's just a provider of light. I have other providers of light in this room. I just happen to use it because it's convenient. Okay. Um, so, you know, if I, I don't think about it often. And if I'm not in use of it, I don't use it. So naturally, I'm going to forget about it as time goes on. Uh, if it ever breaks and I don't replace it, I will never remember it. It was just the thing that was there, that lamp that I used one time. That is what, what we have with poor Natoth, is she's been forgotten. Uh, you know, she's been jailed up since the war, the, the non satari conflict back in Season 2. Uh, and that is it. Like, she's she has been sitting there being fed... Uh, you know, for all these years, just completely forgotten. And that's the tragedy of it all. And Londa really lays that out with the, the story of the guarded flower. That these things happen. And that is a truly miserable, tragic shame. Uh, and what he says about the the flower that was, you know, there, there was a, there, there was just this patch of land randomly being guarded. Uh, and no one knew why. It was just tradition. It was what was done. Uh, and long since forgotten the context of it. And then later, you know, they, they discovered that it had to do 200 years prior. Uh, a Centauri princess saw a flower after a harsh winter. Uh, the first flower to come into bloom. And ordered a guard to stand over it because she wanted to make sure that uh, the flower was protected to show that life can resume after such a harsh moment in time. And, well, she never thought of it again. It became an object, just a thing. And it was forgotten. Lost to the annals of history. And for the next 200 years, a guard would stand watch over that patch of land with no context, no reasoning. Just that it did that. And that was all that was needed, was that was that was told to them. 
And this is very applicable to nowadays. Think how many laws in your country are there, but the context of them doesn't make any sense. Give an example. Uh, you know, uh, there is a law here in Oklahoma, which is the state I live in, about how no car is to be unattended without a guideman with a lantern. Uh, because this was back when horse-drawn carriages or cars were commonplace. And, well, uh, naturally, n no headlights on a horse. So, you know, you know, at nighttime, you need a guideman. That makes perfect sense. It's still a law that's in effect. We've never taken it out. It's not, it's not enforced, but it's long been forgotten. I guarantee no one remembers it exists. But if you look it up, it's on the official list of laws in Oklahoma. And that that just provides the the ultimate uh, triviality of the way we live. That when we take things for granted, we take things as objects, as property, we forget about them. We have no special value for them. And that eventually leads to dehumanization in terms of people. But it also leads to just the the unusefulness of it. Like the 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 guideman doesn't make any sense in today's twenty first century world where we have automated you know cars running about in L A. and we have uh, you know uh, cars with headlights for nearly a hundred years at this point. Uh, so like there is no reason for this law to be in existence, but because tradition demands it, we say it has to be there still. And think of how many laws throughout the world are that case. I, you know, they're, uh, give example, it, it's illegal to wear a suit of armor in the House Parliament, uh, in, uh, the United Kingdom. That doesn't make any sense, right? Well, it goes back to the medieval ages. It's just a law that still exists, though. Um, there, there's an old law in the, in, um, uh, in the UK as well, where you're not allowed to directly, uh, insinuate a politician has, um, made an error, uh, in, inside the house, uh, a parliament or the house of lords. So, uh, when you're directly trying to acknowledge the, the shortcomings of a politician, you have to directly sort of reword your response to not pass blame on them, but say this thing was done incorrectly and how difficult that is for many people and how that leads to literally an inability to progress, uh, any kind of democracy, any kind of legislature, any kind of law, and how that hinders the development of a nation. These little pinpricks, these little things that we have long forgotten but uphold through tradition, how many things like this have been forgotten? And I I don't mean just laws. People, in the case of Natoth, a darn long forgotten in this one jail cell in the middle of nowhere, no one cared. No one knew. And there's another bit of the Londo Jakar segment that I think is interesting. Londo gets a message from this woman uh, from the court. Uh, and then he asks for the undress. And she does it so casually. Think about that for a second. She's not a courtesan. She's not a prostitute or sex worker. She is just a, 
lady of the royal court of the Centaurum. But she does it so casually for the prime minister. Just, bleh. I'm going to take off my clothes. I'm stripping for you. And the context of it is she knew full well that, or at least from context clues, that Londo and probably Jakar wanted to fuck her. Like, think about that for a second and how fucked up that situation is. And she talks about how Cartesia would regularly do this with her. Uh, and it's meant as a joke that, that uh, the Cartesia dressed up in women's clothes. Uh, but, and, and that's supposed to add a bit of levity to that situation. But ultimately, that scene is kind of horrific in the implications. That the idea that with power comes privilege, and with privilege comes the ability to ignore repercussions and consequences. So... The Prime Minister can actively ask a lady of the court to undress and sleep with him, and there is no consequences for that action. At all. Like, that is insanely fucked up. But it's also very Centauri, because of the way they, they do things. Way back in Season 1, they was talked about that uh, information, blackmail, that kind of thing is, is currency to them in the royal court. And sex can be used as a method of obtaining information. It can also be used as a way to blackmail. It can also be used as a way to manipulate. It has many, many purposes, not all of them trustworthy. Uh, and so that situation shows the, the horrific complexity of the royal court and just how easy it is to... Uh, get your way in that kind of society, that kind of society that is built on decadence and personal value and wealth. Overall, a very good episode. Um, it's it's not without its problems. Uh, like I said, the Byron calling Lockley over um, for uh, just to say goodbye instead of any meaningful resolution, because every resolution she tries to offer, he just shoots down. Uh, kind of pointless, but it did provide a little nice scene. Uh, and I don't think the next episode really follows through with the tone set from this episode. This episode is very foreboding uh, in the telepath section uh, with the arrival of the Bloodhound units and all that stuff. And it, and luckily going, you know, a lot of people are going to die and this is going to get really messy and I don't know how to stop it. Because there is no way to stop it. The only way is to... Do you let everyone die? Or... Do you try and prevent enough deaths where only some people die? Everyone or some? What's your choice? There is no option where there is none. Uh, and... It's a miserable, miserable... You know, place to be stuck in. And that's ultimately the issue. Is that I don't think the next episode really follows through with just how tragic and miserable the situation is because it's trying to follow the Byronic hero aspect and be very romantic about it. But I'll get into that next episode. Until then, see ya. Bye.